that song, that hymn takes almost everything I want to say today away from me. So, uh, but I'm still going to give it a shot. Romans chapter five, we just had read to us, and um, may have should have begun at chapter uh, five, verse one, but we started in verse eight because last week we started. Um, a study on the atoning work of Christ. What is the atonement? That basically Christ, the second person of the triune God, became a man, lived a perfect sinless life, died in the place of sinners, and rose again, all to satisfy the righteous indignation of God that was against <laughs> sinners. That's, a, that's probably not the way I defined atonement last week, but that's a great way to define it. That's what it is. We look back at the Old Testament sacrifices and shadows that pointed to this reality, the reality that has truly reconciled sinful man to God. We looked at the word that is translated atonement, the, the passage that John read from uh, Romans 5 here in the King James Bible, that last word that's in the ESV reconciliation is translated atonement in the King James. It's a word that is the word that's usually translated that way. And we talked about the fact that it means simply to be reconciled. But I loved this definition. It is an adjustment of difference. So God in the atonement adjusted the difference that our sin had made between us and God. And he reconciled or restored to favor that relationship. That's exactly what Christ has done. That's what he came to earth for. And so the purpose of this study and especially today, is to look specifically at the nature of this doctrine and truth. So last week we sort of defined it, what is atonement? But today I want to try to briefly demonstrate what atonement did. So the nature of it. Because usually we want to run right to, well, who did Christ die for? But I think it's more important to find out what did Christ do when he died and what did the atonement accomplish and then... It's easier to get to, well, then who is that for? I was sharing this week that when I came to understand the doctrines of grace, like most people, this is the one that I could, this is the hump I couldn't get over. It wasn't until I started studying the nature of the atonement. What did Christ do? What did it accomplish? It wasn't until then that my eyes were opened and I was enlightened to see the whole idea behind the atonement and why it matters. So basically, who did the atonement affect and what is its nature? And one of the first things to note is that the atonement is objective. Like all truth in Scripture, truth is objective. And so the atonement is objective in that it makes its primary impression on the person to whom it was made. For example, we see rather an imperfect um, picture of this in human law. A criminal, we say, must pay his debt to society. If he is a thief and he has stolen something, he's to repay that debt. If he is a murderer and has killed, he has to pay life for life, whether it's literally the death penalty or he pays for it with his life in prison. And of course, when we look at human law and the payment thereof, we see that a lot of times 
the payment doesn't really fit the crime because of the nature of humanity. It just doesn't always work. But you see the point. The thief is paying back his debt to society. He pays maybe pays back from who he stole from, but also the fact that society has now had to pay for him to be arrested and put into prison and so forth, and so there's a debt to be paid. So in a much more perfect way, as sinners, we had a debt that we could not pay. But it has been paid, and it has been paid to the only one to whom it was owed, and that's Jehovah God. There was no payment made to the devil. There was no payment made to people. There was a payment to God and God alone because it is He alone who has been offended by sin, right? The psalmist understood this in Psalm 51 when he was confessing his sinfulness. He said, Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." Sin is always against God, and so it is in our text. Romans 5 points out, if we would have read chapter 1, the beginning of this context, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because He has justified us, but because Christ paid the debt that we owed to God. We're the ones that wronged God, and yet... Our text says God showed his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ took our place. He reconciled us and loved us and justified us and saved us from what? Here's the key to the atoning work of Christ. He saved us from the wrath of God. So atonement is objective in that it is aimed at God. God is the object of the atonement. We try to make everything subjective and about us, but even the atonement is objective and toward God. It is God's wrath that has been propitiated, which is another great word that's connected with atonement. We sort of mentioned it last week. Hebrews 2 and 17 says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be the merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation means, again, to make reconciliation, but literally to be appeased. So Jesus had to become flesh, live a perfect life, perfectly obedient to the law of God, yet die in the place of sinners, so that the wrath of God would be appeased. God's wrath has to focus and rest on something because of sin. Remember we said last week, the Bible told us that until Jesus came, God was accepting those sacrifices made in the Old Testament as a forbearance. Because there was a day coming when he would no longer look over sin, but he would be ultimately punished and paid for R.C. Sproul made this so prominently a part of his preaching and probably made it first one in modern days to make, make it popular and people didn't understand it and didn't like it when he said, who did sinners have to be saved from? They had to be saved from God. 
That's what hell is. It's the wrath of God poured out upon sinners. So atonement was made by Christ toward God so that divine grace propitiates divine wrath. This is why we say it had to be a divine gift or divine sacrifice. Mere man wouldn't suffice. The spotless animals pointed to the spotless Lamb of God. But even they weren't perfect enough. They weren't spotless enough. They weren't sufficient. Hebrews, the entire book, tries to point that out. Had it been enough, then Christ wouldn't have had to come. But he did because it wasn't enough. It only pointed to that which was enough. The divine wrath of God has been propitiated. One of my favorite passages, 2 Corinthians 5 17 through 21. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Man, that's one of the most clear atoning atonement passages in all the Bible. So the atonement is objective in that it has direct influence upon God alone. And only secondarily is the sinner impacted by it. This is very important. Because God has been reconciled through Christ, then the reconciled God, whose wrath has been propitiated by Christ's life and blood, then justifies the sinner. So it's not until secondarily that the atonement has an effect on us. It first objectively affected God and then because God has been propitiated and satisfied and reconciled, now he can come to man and say, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come to Christ and be saved. Because his wrath has been put off and he can now come to sinners and bring them into his family. Lois Burkhoff said it this way, the reconciled God justifies the sinner who accepts the reconciliation and so operates in the heart by the Holy Spirit so that the sinner also lays aside the wicked alienation from God and thus enters into the fruits of the perfect atonement of Christ. In other words, he says, the fact that Christ reconciles God to the sinner results in a reflex action on the sinner. So in virtue of which the sinner may be said to be reconciled to God. So it's not wrong to say Christ died for sinners. In fact, the scripture often emphasizes that fact mainly because since we have been reconciled to God, we have now been given the ministry of reconciliation and then we're under this command that men everywhere repent and be reconciled to God. But Christ died for sinners first and foremost in this way. He vicariously in the place of sinners died to satisfy the wrath of God toward those sinners so that they might, he might reconcile God to men so that God might then justify men. 
I know I just said that same thing in three different ways, but I just want you to get that. That's what atonement is. We couldn't be justified had Christ not reconciled sinners to God. You say, man, all of that happened so that I could be saved? Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? I use the word vicarious because this is another important word from church history regarding the atonement. Jesus is referred to as the vicar. That word means simply substitute. The Pope is no vicar. Neither is any pastor or preacher or priest. It's a frightening thing to refer to yourself as the vicar of God when there's but one of those, and it's Jesus Christ. That word means simply substitute. So you may have heard, especially those of you who maybe a little older than me when preachers really used to preach this idea. And we unfortunately got away from it. But they might have said the substitutionary death of Christ or the propitious death of Christ, the vicarious substitutionary atonement or penal substitution. Any of those words that's kind of foreign to us now, the old timers used to use it because they knew that there had to be somebody stand between us and God. And see, when we leave all this out, then we just get to this simple um, idea of salvation that really is not sufficient to save. And I know that sometimes somebody, a person coming to Christ for the very first, at the very beginning, they can't grasp all this. I get that, but we ought to be preaching it. Let somebody think that they got saved some other way besides a vicarious, penal, substitutionary, atoning work of the God-Man Jesus Christ. <laughs> You might recall last week we looked at those Old Testament priests, especially Aaron on the Day of Atonement. He had to place his hands on the head of that sacrifice and it was symbolic of transferring the sin of the sinner onto that sacrifice that would either be cut and murdered or killed and put on the, the uh, altar or it would be put on the scapegoat who would be turned loose and the sins would be cast away. It's the same idea. You just heard it from the prophet Isaiah. God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's what happened on the cross. God, in a, in a way that we can envision because of the scripture, put his hands on Christ and said, all the sin of my people are transferred to this sacrifice. And then he died in our place. And at the same time, he was the scapegoat. He cast our sin far away. Never to be remembered. Mankind, in order to offer personal atonement, would have had to offer it forever. This is why the Hebrew writer is so clear to say he offered one sacrifice for sin forever. Because there's only one alternative. A sinful human would just keep being sinful. So you have to keep offering a sacrifice. You would never suffice because you would never stop sinning. And the wrath of God would never fully be propitiated. That's the whole problem with this belief that God has done his part, now you do your part. You don't have a part to do. You, it would always be insufficient. You can't by your own free will somehow decide to do something that will propitiate the wrath of God. There's no way. In your sinful self, you would continue to have to be propitiated again. 
or God's wrath would have to be propitiated because you'll never fully do so. Which is why hell is eternal, the same as heaven. Because those who are under the wrath of God will always be under the wrath of God. It will never be paid. But thanks be unto God, those of us who belong to Christ, our debt has been paid in full. And every time we realize, as I was sitting there singing those songs, just being brought back to my mind how sinful and wicked I am, I don't have to fall under that condemnation because Christ paid for my sin. I don't understand why, but he did. And it's a glorious thing that I'll never have to pay for that. I should pay for it. I, like the criminal standing before the judge, should hear that word, you will pay your debt back. But in a remarkable turn of events in history, God said, it's paid for. I paid for it. You go free. It's amazing. The other thing is vicarious atonement, substitutionary atonement involves mercy. That what I just explained to you. Not rendering to the offending party what is deserved. In other words, God has withheld judgment and condemnation. Pictured again in those Old Testament sacrifices. God's passing over sin until the time came for Christ to come into the world. As Paul said in Titus, God saved us not because of works done in us by righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. No wonder Paul would say, I can boast of nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. None of us have anything to boast about. We brought, as somebody said so well, the only thing to the table was the sin that made Christ's death necessary. Yet we get to sit at his table as his child, adopted into his family by grace and by mercy. Man, how dare we add and mix some kind of ridiculous human work into that beautiful picture of grace and mercy. So the nature of the atonement is objective or vicarious or substitutionary. Christ was offered unto God. A decision made in eternity past within the Trinity. And one that the Son of God willingly and voluntarily undertook and accepted to be both the sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat for the people of God. There are a lot of theories out there on the atonement and a lot of them that object, uh, reject this idea. All through church history, they hate this idea. Unsaved humanity will always hate the idea that he can't do anything to fix his problem. That might have been your testimony until God saved you and you realize, thank God he saved me because I would have never fixed it. All the while thinking I could fix it. But one of the things that people suggest is that God would have never done something so cruel to force the son to pay this price. But then we read in Scripture, he wasn't forced, he willingly took it. Mercifully and willingly took this role as a sacrificial lamb. It's who he is. I said, I used the word a while ago, penal substitution. It, it, it's from the word penalty. Simply again, just a way to put it, we believe that Christ paid in full with his life and his death, the penalty due our sin. And God accepted this payment as proven by the resurrection. And therefore God justified those for whom the penalty was paid. 
And there's no possibility of those for whom Christ died of ever dying without being saved. That gets into the extent of the atonement that I want to talk more about. But you see the idea. If Christ, if the nature of the atonement is God was angry and wrathful at sin and had to punish it, so he did on the cross in Christ, is paid for, then how else or what else has to be done? You can't turn around and say, well, then you just got to do your part now. God has done everything. No, the sin is paid for in full. He died for your unbelief. He died for your will that's broken. He died for your hatred. He died for your unwillingness to come and be saved. He died for your unwillingness to repent. He died for all that sin. Your refusal to come. All those things were paid for at the cross and God has accepted it and now calls you to be saved. Calls out to you to be saved. So this is important for so many reasons. This idea of objective, vicarious, substitutionary atonement. But mainly I just want you to hear that point I just made and reiterate. The atonement actually did something. Christ actually propitiated the wrath of God towards sinners. He didn't make something possible. This is what a lot of people say. Well, Christ died so that it's possible now that sinners can be saved. No, Christ died so that his people will be saved. It's a difference. This is why the angel would say again, his name shall be called Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. It's not a possibility. If he died for possibilities, then it would still be up to our sinful self to decide something that we'll never decide. And if we could, then we could all get to heaven one day and say, man, aren't we special? We're so much better choosers than everybody else. Look at how good we can choose. But as we point out, even our chooser is broken. So God had to die for that. Because in our sinful flesh, we'd never choose God and Christ and mercy and grace. So God's wrath towards sinners is no longer in forbearance. It has been satisfied. All that wrath was poured out upon Christ on that dark day. And Christ had already satisfied the righteous demands of the law. He satisfied the retribution due to be paid toward God by sinners who had broken the law. So no wonder he cried out at the cross, it is finished, because it is finished. There is no more payment needed. Sinners have been reconciled to God and there's no need for any other sacrifice. It is finished. So if you're waiting on something, stop waiting and hear what the gospel says. Repent and believe because it's already been paid. A sinner for whom Christ has atoned for, one who Christ has taken his place and offered himself to God in the place of, that sinner's ransom has been paid. It is finished. God is satisfied in, in mercy. That sinner will be saved. Must he repent and believe? Oh, he must. And he will. That's the confidence we have in preaching the gospel. Those for whom Christ died will hear and repent and believe and be saved. It's a glorious hope. He cannot be anything but saved because Christ has taken his place. God has accepted Christ in the sinner's Stead. So he cannot be punished for that which has already been paid. He cannot suffer that for which Christ has already suffered for. 
He cannot suffer for that which Christ has already suffered for. Another hymn that's actually in our book that I'm not sure we've sang, but Augustus Toplady pointed this out in this marvelous hymn called From Whence This Fear and Unbelief, also known as Faith Reviving. It's asking a question, why am I fearful and unbelieving in light of the atonement? And this is how it goes. From whence this fear and unbelief, if God my Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? Can he, the righteous judge of men, condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Do you see his dilemma? Why am I fearful of that which has already been paid for? I can't be recharged for what Christ has already taken and paid. And he goes on to say, Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid. Whate'er thy people owed, how then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in God's righteousness and sprinkled by thy blood? And then this great stanza. See if you can hear what I'm trying to point out in this verse. If thou, God, hast my discharge procured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, then payment God will not twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Do you see the point? How can we say that there's something left to be paid or that sinners who Christ died for will go to hell when their payment has been made? Because God can't say, I accept this payment of my son in the behalf of these sinners and then punish a sinner for all eternity for a payment that he's already received and a debt that's already been cleared. Turn then, he says, my soul unto thy rest, the merits of thy great high priest. Speak peace and liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God since Jesus died for thee. Man, the atonement definitely accomplished something. It did something. It affected God and he will never be... The Bible says there's no shadow of turning in God. He's not going to turn back later and say, man, that wasn't sufficient. It is sufficient. So church, we have a lot to be hopeful for, thankful for, and our salvation is secure. That's why the songwriter would say, why are you, why are you fearful and unbelieving? I think it's why Jesus said to the disciples, why are you still unbelieving? Why are you still afraid? And so God would say to us that same thing. Why are you fearful? You are secure in my grace. In the death of my son, I've accepted on your behalf. And those of you who have never been saved, hear what God is saying. There is no other sacrifice. It has been paid. Repent and believe. There's no other hope. There's nothing else that will save you. This is it. And as Jesus said, it is finished. You don't have to be good. You don't have to make right decisions. Repent and believe because Christ has died in your place. He is your vicar. He is your substitute. And God has accepted it on your behalf. That's a glorious doctrine. Very glorious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of your blessings, especially Christ, and especially the atoning work that has been made in our place. God, we rejoice that we have a Savior such as this that could fully and completely satisfy the wrath that we deserved and was willingly crucified in our place that we might just be able to say, Abba, Father, because we are yours. 
We rejoice in that. And God, as we gather now and pass out the elements of the supper and we celebrate this time together, may we be reminded of what we just read, that you have laid upon Christ the iniquity of us all. By your stripes we have been healed. And Christ, when he took that supper with the disciples, he knew that that bread, he could say, this is my body because this is exactly what it pointed to, his body that would be sacrificed, his blood that would be shed. And so we celebrate that today. And we pray for all those who cannot yet celebrate it, that you would redeem them, that they would celebrate along with us soon. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.